Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. going to introduce my son, Olin, but he's, he walked out. <laughs> now you know what it sounds like in our house. It's so interesting to hear the sound of such a tiny baby. He's six weeks old, six weeks old, and it's really hard to be still, you know. As soon as he makes a little cry, it's like, I don't know if anybody feels in their body, like, this kind of intention right away to go do something. Maybe some of you start leaking. <laughs> um, so tonight I'm uh, going to be talking about the sixth chapter of Shanti Deva's text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Um, this is probably the most widely known chapter of this text, and Next week we'll do the chapter on meditation, the week after the chapter on wisdom. And then according to legend, Shantideva, when he was reciting that chapter, he levitated and disappeared. So if I can pull that off, um, it was really good knowing all of you. Um, if I can't pull it off, then after that, we're going to uh, move on to a new topic. Even though, if you've been hanging around here long enough, it's actually the same thing every week. It's like deja vu. Um, So tonight I'm going to talk about patience, and I'm going to talk about patience as a practice of attunement. And I'd like to begin with a poem... um, by a really beloved poet of the 20th century in Japan, uh, Miyazawa Kenji. Um, Here's how it goes. Neither yielding to rain nor yielding to wind, yielding neither to snow nor to summer heat, with a stout body like that, without greed, never getting angry, always smiling quietly, 
eating one and a half pieces of brown rice and bean paste and a bit of vegetables a day. In everything, not taking oneself into account. Looking, listening, understanding well, and not forgetting. Living in the shadow of pine trees in a field, in a small hut thatched with misanthus. If in the east there's a sick child going and nursing him. If in the west there is a tired mother going and for her carrying bundles of rice. If in the south there's someone dying, going and saying, you don't have to be afraid. If in the north there's a quarrel or a lawsuit, saying, it's not worth it, stop it. In a drought shedding tears, in a cold summer pacing back and forth, lost, called a good-for-nothing by everyone, neither praised nor thought a pain. Someone like that is what I want to be. Someone like that is what I want to be. So I love this, this image of somebody who on the surface looks like a recluse. On the surface, it looks like they're being still in their thatched hut uh, under the pine trees. And uh, yet, as soon as there's someone in need, they're right there. Right there. And that's a little like us, I think, too, in some much more complicated way. When you sit, it's so important that you can pull away from the concerns of the day that you can pull away from your ongoing habits. So in a certain way, sitting is a kind of retreat. But actually, even though it might seem on the outset like a retreat, it's actually plunging you much more deeply into your life. So that when someone is sick, we can recognize that someone is sick. I think we all know sometimes when we're so busy, we might meet people who have things going on who, uh, and we don't even notice. They might be in pain and we don't even notice because we're just in our old stories. So in a way, uh, meditation practice is a kind of attunement both interiorly and uh, interpersonally intrapsychically and interpersonally. And for attunement to happen, there has to be patience. Real deep patience. And this is what I want to explore tonight. Um, Patience is really the value most treasured in my house right now. (laughs) Especially at 4 a.m. Uh, When a baby is six weeks old, he or she can't attune to themselves. So they need somebody to tune into their needs, which are so basic. So we have to tune in to the needs of a six-week-old, 
which are different than the needs of a two-week-old or a two-year-old or a 90-year-old. Well, actually, it's not that different to the needs of some <laughs> 90-year-olds. Oh, this is Olin and his sleepy mom. <laughs> it was nice to have you here. Aww. <laughs> He's extra cute in stripes. <laughs> Uh, So when we're meditating, sometimes we're a little bit like a six-week-old because we're learning how to understand the world. And also, uh, as some of you practice more and more, one of the things you're also doing is learning how to monitor yourself. You're learning how to soothe yourself when you're anxious. You're learning how to calm yourself when you're irritated. So in a way, meditation is a little bit like reparenting. Reparenting the wounds that are still open from when we were young and maybe not all our needs could be met. Um, kids uh, have to be tuned into uh, parents have to be tuned into we all need to be tuned into one another Uh, in Buddhism we call this uh, interdependence I think it's a mistake these days sometimes when uh, all of the Buddha's teachings (coughs) get boiled down to interdependence you hear this a lot that if you really want to sum up the Buddha's teaching It's interdependence. But it's actually two things. It's the recognition or the awakening to the oneness of life and also non-attachment, also not holding on. Not even holding on to your theory of the oneness of life. It's said that we experience the world the way we experienced our parents experiencing us. So how you understand the world is very much informed by how you experienced your mother and father or your caregiver understanding you. So uh, attunement uh, has everything to do with setting up good patterns in our psyche and healing the old patterns in our psyche where there's still a kind of open wound. Uh, patience is also, like attunement, something we really lack in our culture. Our culture is obsessed with rage and explosiveness. Air rage, uh, rage in traffic. Has anybody here driven lately? It's unbelievable how much rage there is. I want to just put a camera on the front of my car and take pictures sometimes at people's faces in traffic. It's terrible how much rage there is on the road. I'm sure if I googled rage, there would be a whole list now that psychiatrists have created of all the kinds of rage uh, that we have. Um, So 
Uh, as we explored last week, Shantideva says something about this. He says, in one moment of rage, all of your practice is destroyed. All of your practice is swallowed up in one moment of anger. We all know this, right? One moment of anger, where is all that practice? There's a story about this where an old yak herder is uh, uh, taking care of his yaks, and he comes across a meditator in a cave. And so he stops by. I guess this is what they did in northern India. You know. Stop by to say hello. And, um, and uh, uh, says to the meditator, when you're meditating, what are you working on? And the meditator says, uh, patience. And the yak herder says, well, that's a really good thing. I should work on that also. He says, yeah, it would be good if you worked on patience also. And then he says, is it, to the meditator, is it coming along? He's like, oh yeah, I've been here for half my life, half my adult life, uh, working on patience. And the yak herder thinks, oh, this is a great idea. And as the yak herder is leaving, he turns over his shoulder and says to the meditator, go to hell! And the meditator gets up and says, you go to hell! <laughs> and the yak herder says, you better keep on working on this practice. I feel like both of those people in one. Um, uh, we live in the West. We don't live in uh, the vast plains of Tibet. I remember a few years ago, it's actually many years ago now, uh, somebody was telling me a story. Uh, he, he studied for, you know, 10 or 15 years in Tibet with a teacher. And he said the main teaching that his teacher taught him is to access concentration through relaxation. And I said, oh, well, what was your teacher like? He said, well, my teacher was a goat herder. Okay, so you have to picture the life of a goat herder. So you're in uh, the eastern part of Tibet, really big plains, right? And there's, uh, you're herding goats. So it's pretty action-packed. In the summer, your job is you sit up in the hills and you watch the goats. And that's the busy season. And then in the wintertime, you make a fire and uh, you hang out with your family. So in the busy season, you're out there in the open air watching the herd, making sure everything's okay. And then you get to meditation practice, and the first thing they teach you is shamatha, is relaxation. And then this goes on for centuries and centuries. And when he started describing the life of his teacher, I thought, what on earth are we doing here? We, most Westerners, they sit down to meditate, and they work so hard meditating. And his main practice is just to relax. And when he described that, I mean, can you imagine this? You're 30 years old, and you've been a goat herder your whole life, and then you get to a teacher, and the teacher tells you, you should just relax. And picture your day today. 
So I think sometimes we, we can't value, we can't overvalue this. Patience is so connected to relaxation. The more we practice, the more we become tuned in to what's actually going on in our lives. And if that's not met with a background of relaxation, then we'll be totally overwhelmed. Because we'll become, on the one hand, more and more sensitive, and on the other hand, uh, more and more wound up because of the sensitivity. So it's so important to relax. Are you hearing this? (laughs) Or are you saying, I have to work harder at relaxing? I also think that because we lack patience, we don't pursue our practice deeply enough. And some of you, I'm always on your case about this. That if you're going to practice, and this is going to be what you do in your life, you have to go deep with it. You've already been a philosopher for so many years, thinking through the practice, reading about practice but actually to go deep. And part of this is because uh, the currency in meditation practice is time. The currency in our culture is money. But actually, uh, one thing you can really control in your life is time. And one thing that most of us can't really completely control is money. And it's much more valuable to have time. It's much more valuable to have time. Money will come and money will go. But in meditation practice, uh, the currency is time. And if you're uptight about time, then when you start practicing if the practice is not giving you the results you think it should, then you're going to get frustrated because you're practicing for a few years and you're just not getting the results. And then you say, I've put the time into it. But actually, what takes a lot of patience and diligence is to practice in a way where the practice frustrates your result-oriented mind. And, and, and time has, uh, slow time has to be the currency for that kind of gradual practice. Because whenever we practice, we get so idealistic and we put these big carrots in front of us, Dharma carrots, and they dangle in front of us and we want to have some certain experience that we read about or heard about. You need a lot of patience to stay with what you're doing for the long haul. And to me, this is how attunement works. It's a commitment. And I like the idea of commitment much more than discipline. Um, There's a wonderful uh, writer. He's actually my favorite writer right now although I should never say that, uh, named George Saunders. And uh, I was just uh, 
reading an interview with him uh, with Eleanor Wachtel from CBC. Um, listen to what he says about, about patience. I have a bunch of middle-age fantasies that I am suppressing most of the time because I don't want to be that guy. But when I meet them, I can just sort of open that valve and be a grumpy middle-aged guy for a few pages. We are many, many people. Of course we control and project the persona we want to be outwards. Art is a way to open the box and let those people play and then put them back. I feel like I'm more patient as a person and as a writer. I am more willing to move past the automatic dark moves in a story that I might have been interested in when I was younger. In the spirit of us being many people, when I was a young guy, there was this new realization that capitalism was harsh. I was a young guy with a young family, and for the first time I realized that the system really had claws and would use them pretty indiscriminately, and it was terrifying, and for some reason this was a new revelation to me. That was a controlling impulse in my first books. I still think now that that's totally true, but maybe I'm slightly more interested in how we push back against that. Is it possible? I think it is. As you get older, it's possible that you become more comfortable in your ability to be confident and discern what's good. I like this. As you become older, and this is in the context of him talking about maturing as a writer, that you become more comfortable in your ability to be confident and to discern what's good. To discern what's good. So this is attunement he's talking about. Attunement. And when we're patient, the other thing we open up to is impermanence, is change. Sometimes uh, the teachings on impermanence get reified a little too much. You hear often, and I read this a lot in the popular uh, mindfulness jargon, uh, that you know one of the key things that we gain insight into in practice is impermanence as if you open up to the impermanent nature of reality. But the Buddha didn't really teach impermanence as some kind of thing that you deify, that, oh, I saw the impermanence of... But rather, you meditate on impermanence to recognize the futility of permanence, to recognize the, the trouble with trying to create structures that last. And most of the structures that we try and create that last are superimpositions on other people or on ourselves. And all of them can be softened with patience, with attunement. Because when we're patient and we're tuning in to our experience, uh, there's less, it's, it's the antithesis of creating structure. And when I talk about structure, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, all structure. I'm talking about the structure that has compulsion in it. 
the structure that has rigidity in it. So insight into impermanence is actually seeing that there's no true permanence. So let me read what Shantideva uh, says about this. I'm just going to skip through a few different uh, lines. There is no transgression like hatred and no fortitude like patience. I should strive in various ways to meditate on patience. My mind will not experience peace if it fosters painful thoughts of hatred. I shall find no joy or happiness. Unable to sleep, I will feel unsettled. By impatience, friends and relatives are disheartened. Though drawn by my generosity, they will not trust me. In brief, there is nobody who lives happily with anger. Having found its fuel of mental unhappiness in the prevention of what I wish for, so this is interesting, having found its fuel of mental unhappiness in the prevention of what I wish for. How frustrating it is to not get what you want. How frustrating it is to prevent yourself from getting what you want. How frustrating it is to be prevented from getting what you want because of your inability to be attuned to what you really want. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it can't be remedied? Isn't that good? If something's screwed up, why be so unhappy about it? Uh If you can fix it, don't be so unhappy. And if you can't fix it, don't be so unhappy. You can insert something there about your parents. (laughs) For myself and for my friends, I want no suffering, no disrespect, no harsh words, and nothing unpleasant. But for my enemies, it's the opposite. The causes of happiness sometimes occur, but the causes of suffering are frequent. Without suffering, there's no renunciation. Therefore, mind, you should stand firm. There's nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So by becoming acquainted with small harms, I can learn to patiently accept greater harms. Which is saying, thank God that you have an enemy. There are so many good people, it's really hard to find a bad person. So when you find a bad person, it's a great thing. It's a miracle. Because that bad person is in your life. That enemy you have is in your life so that you can become acquainted with him or her so that you can cultivate patience. What a great thing. You would never cultivate deep patience if you didn't have an enemy. It's amazing. So Shanti Deva is saying here, You should be so grateful 
that you have an enemy because now you have fuel for practice. It's an amazing thing. <coughs> and you shouldn't fight back. You shouldn't fight against them. Seems to be the, the, the kind of implicit teaching. Don't fight against them because uh, you should only practice patience with them and you should not go to war with them. So let them continually be your enemy. But then if you take it further, you should also think, well, maybe I should fight them because if I do fight them, then they'll have to practice patience. So actually, maybe it's a really good Dharma practice to fight with our enemies. Because if you fight with your enemy, then you really appear (coughs) as an enemy to them, and then they can uh, develop patience and become acquainted with their hostility. So actually, if you have someone in your life that you have to fight a lot, this is a great service to them. (laughs) And when they fight with you, it's a great service to you. What a fantastic thing. This is amazing. So there's nothing wrong in the world. We really need each other to fight so that we can really cultivate patience. I might have added a little to Shanti Deva here. Let me keep going. Without thinking... I shall be angry, people become angry with no resistance. And without thinking, I shall produce anger in myself. Anger is just produced. (coughs) All mistakes occur like this, and all various kinds of wrongdoing also occur like this. Mistakes and wrongdoing arise through the force of conditions. They don't govern themselves. They don't govern themselves. That is really interesting. Saying that when anger arises, it's actually not really your fault that anger is arising. And it's not completely the fault of the other person. It's actually the combination that's creating the conditions for your impatience. But the impatience doesn't govern itself. It has no self. It's just conditions. And then the conditions change. That's a really important insight, I think. Someone was saying this last week. I don't know if it was during the class or after, but I I think the people who really see that a lot are people who work in prisons or people who work with young people who have done really dumb things. And then, when you work especially with young people, you see in them so much good. This person is in prison for some really stupid thing that they did. But that thing just happened within (coughs) these crazy conditions. And maybe if any of us had those conditions, we would have done the same thing. But maybe we got lucky. And then that person's whole life behind bars is uh, over-determination of the consequences of those conditions. 
sometimes I feel like if you were to take the Bodhisattva vow further, we could never be free until people are out of prison. The United States has the highest per capita imprisonment than any country on earth. Canada has the highest number of people in mental institutions than any country on the planet. So how can we be free if our freedom is dependent on massive numbers of people imprisoned? You can't. So, so this is uh, where we have to come out of our hut. Uh, let me keep going. Uh, let Shantideva keep going. Um, when one sees an enemy or even a friend committing an improper action, by thinking that such things arise from conditions, you can remain in a joyful state of mind. Can you do that? Previously, you can say, I must have caused similar harm to other sentient beings. Therefore, it is right for this harm to be returned to me who caused injury to others. So there's so many ways we can look at that. One is, uh, if you choose an incident that you find abominable and then you really study all the characters in that encounter, in that episode in that instance uh, you'll probably find that they are exaggerated versions of yourself you have the capacity to kill anybody here who thinks that they don't have the capacity to kill is a time bomb. You have the capacity to love. Anybody here who's so wounded that you don't feel like you can love more than the way you're loving now has potential in their practice. Because we get stuck. We think, oh my God, is this all that there is? And then when you feel that, you get motivated to practice in a deeper way. I remember this uh, in 2002, I think it was, I met His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And after I met him, I was so depressed for days because I thought, I can love way better than the way that I love. When you're with him, he gives you full attention. Maybe I talked to him for eight minutes. But when I was with him, he's totally tuned in. There's no platitudes. If he doesn't like something, he says it. If he likes something, he says it. Right there. When he laughs, the laugh comes out of his pelvis. He, his laugh is for real. <coughs> so afterwards, I thought, I have a lot of work to do in my practice because I'm not tuned in like that. So, patience. If I can patiently accept this lack of confidence because it is related to someone else, then why am I not patient with unpleasant words about myself? 
since they are related to the arising of disturbing conceptions. In other words, all of your mistaken and disturbing conceptions about other people, they come from how you talk to yourself. So you have to go into your hut and work with that. And then the end of the chapter, this is like Passover with my family. You go through the book really fast because everybody just wants the meal. Um, The Buddha said something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, when he died, he saw two visions for the Dharma. One of them is it would be like a big feast with lots of intoxicants, And then at the end of the feast, somebody makes a speech. And the speech kind of comes after his teaching. And that would not be very good. And on the other hand, there would just be no food. So if you don't have food, there can be no after-dinner speech. And he thought the middle way of the Dharma would just be to have practice and talks. Dharma talks. Like this. So... We don't have any food, so there can be no speech. It's kind of nice. That was a tangent. Why do I not see that my future attainment of Buddhahood, as well as glory, renown, and happiness in this very life, all come from serving sentient beings? Why can't I see, why can't you see, that real joy and happiness in this life comes from serving sentient beings. I had a student uh, named Jerry who I spent a lot of time with when he was dying. Uh, Elaine, Elaine too. Um, I was teaching him meditation. Elaine was teaching him pranayama. And... uh, uh, when he was in the hospital and he was dying, he he was so good to the nurses. He was this amazing thing. First of all, he, he was such a loving guy. And the reason why he wanted me to come to the hospital a lot towards the end is the thing he was, the only thing he was scared about was pain. That's all he was scared about. He's like, if I die, it's going to be really bad for my family. I'm worried about my wife. She's not going to be in good shape when I die. Uh, My kids are going to be okay. I love them. They know I love them. But I am scared of feeling pain. So what can I do about it? So I would go a few times a week, and we would do these meditation practices on pain. And uh, then something started happening. As he was feeling pain... He was able to meet the pain, and it was tolerable. Uh, But then his love was going through the roof. He he was so kind to the nurses, and all he could think about was how he could help them. How so he would, you know, move on his bed in a way that would make their job so easy. He would try and get around the room to clean things up so that they didn't have to clean them up. And uh, his wife said that he was never like this. (laughs) And then, uh, towards the end, he was becoming really sad that he would not be able to give back 
to all the nurses. He didn't feel this way about the doctors. Um, but he felt this way about the nurses, that he wouldn't be able to give back to the nurses in the way that they gave to him. I thought this was really beautiful. I have more to say on this. Does anybody have anything you wanna they wanna add? What do you hear as we're talking about patience? What does it bring up for you? Does anybody here struggle in certain areas with patience? It's easy to be a really good Buddhist when things are going good. But this to- this this topic has to do with when you're a monster. Doug. Um, I think every the, the, the part that I have over yet, but this is struggling to me, but I'm not sure what I'm doing with this weapon. Because every single message we get in society says sooner is better, uh, more is better, but sooner is better. And the patience means you lose. Yeah. And I mean I I've heard that in every place I've ever been worked and it surrounds people like me here. Yeah. And no one stops to question. Yeah. And and they never ask the what to me is now my favorite question and then you know, so then you get the promotion and you get the, the Porsche then and then yeah. and they never get there because they're too busy being uncomfortable now with what they became. Mm. I guess the, the part of me that just frustrated is is how did you get here? And you know, for allegedly intelligent people, they want a stupid thing. Mm-hmm. I just cannot get myself wrapped around the the, 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 the pain that our capitalism is putting on people mm-hmm. simply to make the numbers. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just sort of stop at that one. Yeah. And how much I bought into it for very long. Totally relevant in my life right now. Um, the idea of patience without expectation. Mm-hmm. Like holding, being patient, and not thinking that something will change. Like not holding yeah. out for something to change with your yeah. patience, not using your patience. That's the Dharma carrot I was talking about. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, I, I'm being patient mm-hmm. in order to. And, and yet, yeah. even if you can drop that, yeah. I mean, you still know in the back of your mind what outcomes you want. Yeah. And so, how to that like just I don't know that's that's what brings up is just that that spot is very um, slippery yeah I I mean you also want to be careful because he's not saying um, that you don't need to that so the problem with impatience is expectation but it's okay to have expectation it's just when the expectations become rigid. That uh, to say, oh, I'm being patient and I have no idea where this is going and I'm going to keep staying it, staying with it even though I don't know where this is heading. In some situations, we can do that. But we can't do that in every situation. So it's okay to have a goal. It's okay to have a, a, a kind of imagined phantom city as long as we see that as a phantom city 
not, at, you know. So if you get the expectation, because it was actually a goal to not then sit there, you would, I win. Yeah, but also, um, it's okay to practice patience and to recognize that there is something that you really want out of this. You know, like in meditation practice. If I said when you should meditate, you should just have absolutely no motivation, you should have no deep intention, and you should have no goal, I think that's a little too idealistic. Um, But I think as we start to hear more stories and more teachings, it shapes how we approach our practice. But we also have to watch where we get clingy, and and we want to have the experience that person had. That's why always, you know, I'm always really careful talking about my experiences meditating. Sometimes I like to tell the story and sometimes I pull back because I don't want it to seem like that's the experience you should have. Even though sometimes I say to people, that's the experience you should have. (laughs) So you better work on that. So how can you have patience and suspend the in order to mind. Not get too rigid with your expectations. Yes? I'm just kind of thrown back into a deja vu a little bit. But my first Seder that I ever attended, which mm-hmm. is the only Seder I've ever attended, as maybe mentioned it, um, was I was working. Mm. And I was at a resort and we had this big, like, you know, two week, you know, milk, dairy meal, like this whole thing that I didn't know anything about. And we had a Seder night, and they said, we're putting you with this this family because you seem like a really patient person, so we're going (laughs) to put you in there because we think that you're the person. And he's he's the big guy of the whole Hasidic thing, and his family's really going to go through a long Seder, so it's going to be a long night for you, but, you know, it'll be fine. So I get there and I sort of like, all right, this is going to be interesting. And my name is Rachel, and my name tag spelled wrong, so it looks like it's like I'm, you know, they thought I was Jewish just based on my name, or I don't know how I looked, or I don't know, but they just, I don't know, for some reason they just assumed I was. And I stood there before the line and giving offerings, of, and I was just told what to, I had no idea what it was. And at the very end, and I literally had a couple of times where I was about to fall asleep or I wanted to leave or I had all these thoughts going through. I was getting impatient in that whole, like they're talking in a language I don't understand. I don't know if I'm doing things right. I don't know if they're judging me, this whole thing. At the end of the night, the father of the family comes up to me and shakes me with both hands and says, that's the longest time we've ever gone through everything. Because we're uh-huh. always just wanting to finish so we can eat. Ah, uh, yeah. So by having you in the room, you were this <laughs> reason that we suspended everything because we thought that you were going to be judging us. And that's really funny because I spent the whole night being like, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> maybe yeah. I can leave or I don't know how I was supposed to go to the washroom. Yeah. Right? It was just there's no breaks. Yeah. He said, oh, it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and then the son is like, this was the worst. <laughs> yeah. It was the longest night of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it was weird because at the end of the night I did not expect him to say that. I just was, I'm yeah. glad for him. This is like the yeah. worst night of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting for this to end. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> 
this is a, usually this is a much shorter night. <laughs> but because you're here, we thought maybe. Good <laughs> uh, I find that I'm confusing maybe uh, with patience and letting go. I find that focusing on patience <coughs> kind of distracts me. Like in this case, I find if I let go, patience will emerge. Mm-hmm. You're just focusing on. It can only emerge by focusing on that, anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that usually happens with like when there's a group of people that I'm with, mm-hmm. and like I want my goal, or I want my something to turn out a certain way. Yeah. So by letting go of that, sure. just working with kind of attunement to the situation, yeah. letting go of the idea. Yeah. It in a way it still happens, but just in a different way. But kind of yeah. gets there. Yeah. Um, this happens with performances and mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think they can be synonymous. In, in the yoga tradition, the way patience is talked about is uh, the word that you, is used is tapas, which usually, which means heat. It also means anxiety. Um, and tapas is when you sit in the middle of opposites. Does anybody know what that feels like? Uh, has anybody here ever wanted to go in two directions at the same time? <laughs> So you sit in the middle of it. Uh, Carl Jung called tapas when he discovered it. Uh, in, in the way he translated it was he called it the transcendent function, which is when you are sitting in the middle of opposites, you practice the practice of tapas. So you say, okay, I'm stuck between opposites, and my practice is actually just going to is going to be to live in that, not so that it's dead, like oh, I just got to be in the middle of it. But you, you live the energy of those opposing forces. The idea being, and why it's called the transcendent function, is then something new arises out of that, that you couldn't have created from outside of it. And that if you try and create something from outside to solve the opposites, then uh, you don't ever get the sense that it was a deep enough transformation. And that's the interesting thing about Shantideva, is he's juxtaposing patience and anger. And he's saying it's not that anger is necessarily just bad, it's that we have to transform anger. And you transform anger with the energy of patience. And the energy of patience is when we sit in the middle of opposites, when you sit in paradox. Uh Uh-huh. And so underneath this whole teaching is the teaching of karma. Because on the, the, karma is the most paradoxical teaching. Because on the one hand it's saying, you have a blueprint. You, you, you did not come into the world as a clean slate. You have genetic predispositions, you have physical predispositions, you might have a predisposition to a certain mood or a certain way of being, whether you're into uh, genetics or you're into uh, astrology or whatever. Um, and a lot of what's going on for you has been preset. It's not your fault. It's your responsibility, but it's not all so personal. And on the other hand, you have the ability to make choices. 
And in uh, the West, we're always debating free will or fate, and we're falling on either side. But from the Buddhist tradition, they're saying it's always both sides. It's always both sides. And you being in the middle of that is karma. And that's why karma is where you get the English word creativity. The kur in karma, which is a verb which means to make, is where you get the English word create. So karma is creativity because it's saying, what are you going to shape with the conditions you've got? How are you going to shape them? So it's not that anger is something to vent or to get rid of. It's something to reshape. It's plastic. It's an art form, like a novel or um, any other kind of form that you sculpt and change and recreate. But this requires the ability to be in opposites. Should I live in the city or should I live in the country? Has anyone done this before? (laughs) Should I commit, or should I be free? Should I take this job that's really well-paying so that I can do real good with my time, or should I take this work that really has the, the values that I believe in, but I'll really be broke? That's called yoga teacher training. <laughs> Another comment or question? And then, uh, yeah. But, well, I said to my husband, we didn't see his parents for Easter. And there's conflict between his parents and I. And I said, why don't we go tomorrow before my yoga class? And my husband's like, no, that'll just throw you right off and your yoga class won't be good. I thought it would be practice. But he's right. It knocks me somewhere crazy. So, I don't know. I like what you said. You talk, you make, you know, you bring up parents a lot, but I think that in-laws are actually good practice. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm not and if you, in. Yeah, and if you fight with them, it's good practice for them. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> um, let me tell you about my day today. Okay. I woke up at 5 this morning so that Karina could sleep, so that I could be with the baby. Then uh, I made food for everybody. Then I left home early because I had to meet the doctor who has been working on my knee. I got to the hospital. It was the wrong day. It's tomorrow, <laughs> the appointment. So then I had to come back. And then I thought, okay, now I've got to really work on the Dharma talk. So I went to my favorite coffee shop sat down. Just as I was starting to work, Karina called. She's like, oh, I made a mistake. I'm working this morning. I need you to come home. So then I had to come home. Then I got home. I was with the baby while she was working. And then we all need to eat lunch. So then I have to make lunch. So then, And then suddenly it's like 2 o'clock. I've got to write a Dharma talk. <laughs> and, but yesterday, my whole day, I, I had the whole day planned today. It was going to be a great day. 
So wake up early in the morning, practice, go to my appointment, and then have a coffee, and then go spend the day at the library, uh, researching patients. I found this section of Sanskrit English dictionaries. I was going to do this whole etymology on the term. It was going to be an amazing talk tonight. <laughs> and then all of you would be so happy at the end of the talk, and you'd have patience instilled in you from all my hard work during the day, and then the baby would come, and he'd be up, and everybody would meet him, and it would be a perfect day. So I practice patience all day today. And uh, it's really easy to talk about in retrospect. <laughs> one, one more comment, Mina, and then we'll wrap up, because I promised I would finish by nine. I think the description of um, your enemies as uh, impetus for practicing patience sounded to me more like you know, your partners and your families are more like the, the real impetus to... Yeah. Well, it's, it's not because they're so good, but because they can really push your buttons and yeah. and, uh, and you you really have to practice. And then I think you can also be a um, impetus for the other person. Yeah. So when they push your buttons. You taking care of those buttons is entirely your responsibility. And that's where your practice comes in. Um, we can critique capitalism forever. And our response to it is our responsibility. It's only our responsibility. So... Good luck. I hope you'll really take this in deeply and consider uh, how to practice this. Next week, uh, we're going to focus on chapter seven, which is the chapter on meditation practice. Seven or eight? Seven? 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 Seven, eight. I don't know. I'm confused now. Anyways, um, wait. I have the book here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Next week, the chapter is on enthusiasm, virya, and then after that is the chapter eight on meditation, and then chapter nine on wisdom. And I think we'll do wisdom and the chapter ten together as one chapter. Does that sound reasonable? Okay. Let's finish chanting.